Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, my name is Brian. This is a bonus episode where we put the extra stuff, including cool interviews with amazing people. Got a special opportunity to talk to Mitchell Cohen about a brand new book he wrote called Looking for the Magic. It's a cultural historical remix, a perspective on Arista Records in the 70s. And it is a lot of fun. And if you are a music nerd, you are going to be overwhelmed by the amount of information that you can learn in this book about what Arista was doing in its very early days once Clive Davis stepped in and started to build that new empire of his. So we're going to get into that with Mitchell. A little about Mitchell. Mitchell's written about music and film for Cream, for High Fidelity, for Film Comment, for The Village Voice, for Musician and Phonograph Record. And he himself worked at Arista in the late 70s. And he'll talk about this, but he started like as a copywriter, worked his way up into A&R. And so he's got a lot of stories. He's spent the last several years uh, doing a lot of writing. He's worked in other A&R departments. He knows a lot about the music business and he gets to share it with us. It's really cool. This was a lot of fun. And if you want to check out the book, you can find it now. It just dropped this week in retailers and online. It's called Looking for the Magic, New York City, the 70s and the Rise of Aristo Records. Okay, now let's talk to Mitchell. All right, man. Well, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Uh, the the book. Thank you. Um, the book is really, it's not just about one thing. It feels like it's about three things, right? It's about Arista, but it's also about the 70s. And it's about New York. And you can really feel those things, I think. So tell me what, you know, what made you want to write a book so specifically set in that time and, and about those things? Yeah. Um, when this first came about, uh, BMG Books was doing a series, an RPM book series oh, on yeah. independent record labels. And they had done specialty and sub pop. And they, they were going to do Chrysalis. And a few more, and I pitched an Arista book, and uh, and they gave me an advance, and I turned in the manuscript uh, in February of 2020, Uh-oh. right right before right before the pandemic hit, and because uh, and then it was put on hold, and then uh, the following year there was there was an editorial change at BMG. And they discontinued the whole series. Oh man! So I I found myself with this with this manuscript about the independent years of Arista, and and I wanted it to be more than the story of the record label. Right. I wanted it to be the story of what it was like to be in the record business in the seventies, uh, what it was like to be in New York City, in the center of New York City, when everything that was happening in New Wave and Cabaret and Disco and Punk and Jazz was was all happening at the same time and all happening at Arista, which which I joined in 1977, like its third year. And um, when I joined Arista, I thought it was the coolest new record label yeah. in the city. Yeah, they they had Patti Smith. And Lou Reed and the Kinks and uh, and Dwight Twilley and, and, and yeah you know, and they were about to find Graham Parker in the rumor and Gil, they had Gil Scott Heron and some of my favorite R and B artists Martha Reeves General Johnson so I 
Monty Python. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I thought it was like a very they offered me a very entry level PR press release writing job. And that was my entry into into the music business and into the label. So one thing that this book really did for me was remind me of just how much music like artists and bands that got record deals and went on tours, et cetera, have been lost to time. And I know you sort of even allude to this in the intro where you say this idea of like, hey, I may not even waste your time talking about the bands that you've heard of <laughs> because <laughs> there's there's so much of this, of like what you're talking about, this churn of, hey, here's here are all these acts we're throwing out there to see what will stick and here's these different trends. And you, you spend a lot of time talking about Clive trying to figure out, hey, well, you know, how do I get jazz to work and who do I bring in to do jazz right. and how do I, I get that was an important part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not enough, you know, there's a lot of guys that'll sit around and talk about rock and roll, but it's one of my best friends and an, an English professor at uh, UofL. He will tell you that there's not enough people to sit around on podcasts and talk about jazz. Right. And I, and I was reading it thinking, man, I got to make sure he gets a copy of this because he's really going to oh, appreciate yeah. all the jazz talk. A lot of, a lot of my friends who are very into jazz, uh, are, are are very envious that I got to talk to Michael Cascuna mm-hmm. about about the early days of of, of Arista Jazz under Steve Backer, what we were doing with with Arista Freedom and Novus, uh, you know, and you know, it, it was just a very it was a very exciting time and a very eclectic roster, and I didn't really feel the need to go into that much detail about the hits that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Or about the period, like you know, the post Whitney period when you know when everything we were putting out was was clicking. What what was was fun for me was to talk about the independent years. Yeah, when it was just sort of like a little bit more ramshackle and a little bit more. Uh, let's just see what we can make this record label into. It was a brand new. It was a brand new label built on the skeleton of Bell, and. Um, and what Clive was doing by signing artists like Gil Scott Heron and Patti Smith uh, was, was was trying to find adventurous, uh, forward-thinking stuff. At the same time, you know, coming up with hits for Barry Manilow and and, and uh, Melissa Manchester and you know, Eric Carmen, things like that. Yeah. Right, and I love all of the the original artwork, the posters, the the things you're able to include in the book to really see what it looked like in the moment. And, um, you know, was there any particular story, like when you started to work on this project, even, you know, back before the pandemic, where you said, okay, th- this story's got to be included, or this particular yes, anecdote sort of spun everything I, else off? I did. I wanted to, I wanted to tell the story of, uh, of, of the R&B group uh, called... Uh, Quasar, which was part of was an offshoot of the of the P Funk orbit, and, and and existed very briefly one 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 album, and there was a lot of there was a lot of promise to it, and a lot of people who loved the P Funk world were very excited about it, and it, it's a record that is sort of like vanished in in the mist of time for most people, not among among the folk the funk uh, um, in the know people. But there were albums like Linda Lewis and David Foreman and Willie Nile that that even as a fan, as a rock writer, I, I you know, I would be like, why didn't these records do better? Right. Why 
with you know with with all the excitement, with all the enthusiasm, with all with all the good press, with all with all the resources, why certain records click and certain artists make the connection and certain artists don't. And it's it very easy to you know. I mean, Clive wrote a very detailed book about his time at Arista, but. Uh, he focused on as as he should on 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 what the big successes were. For for this book, I wanted a, I keep calling it like 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 a remix, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Story or 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 like a flip side. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's the same thing, but it's like it's being remixed to bring bring up things to the surface and and maybe not focus so much on the on the things that people might already know. So, yeah, it's like, you know, if, if there's like a book version of a remix. What it reminds me of, and we're old radio guys, is back in the day when you would you would walk into a music director's office and there'd be these stacks of CDs on a desk or tapes on a desk, right? And you'd start going through them and you'd be like, okay, I've heard of this one and this one, and what's the rest of this, right? And it's sort of like you got to go through the rest of it and go, but wait, you should check yeah. this one out and you should check this one out and you should check this one out. Well, that's what that's what we do as music fans. Yeah. Certainly, what we do as as rock writers is saying you should listen to this. You should know about this. And the fact that it was all happening under one under one roof was was fascinating to me because you don't always get that picture when you. I mean, a record label is usually is defined by its hits. Yeah. I mean, you know, the stuff that yeah. people know. What was more interesting to me is like. The attempts that Arista was making with R&B artists like Martha Reeves and Bobby Womack and General Johnson, uh, the stuff that you know that they were doing with stinger songwriters like Willie Nile and David Foreman, it, it was you know things that that got good got good reviews and and got had a lot of enthusiasm inside the company, but for one reason or another. Uh, are not are not really in the forefront of what people think of when they think of the record label. Right. And I mean, what I'd encourage people when they grab this book to hold the book in one hand and then have your your Spotify or your YouTube or something <laughs> next to you because I immediately it's what happened to me. I got in the first two pages of your book and I was I was looking up stealing horses. But it's always fascinating to me to hear the stories of my friends who were who work at other labels who would turn me on to things and they, that they were so jazzed about. And, you know, that's, you know, that, you know, a, a and R in, in, in the eighties in New York was a very small community. We bump into each other. We tell everybody where we were going. We meet up at showcases and, and we were all huge music fans who were just like lucky enough to be a part of, of, of the Michigas that was happening. And, and, and this, that the, the excitement was not always about, the, you know, the breakthroughs, but about, you, you know, you, you, you know, you got to come and see this guy at Cheney or you got to come and see this act. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't think that that kind of community exists anymore. I haven't heard in many years about an artist that was signed like by accident by someone stumbling into a showcase. Yeah, which, which used to happen all the time in the in the seventies. Like right. someone would tell someone else, "You got to come down to CBGBs, or you got to see this opening act at the Bottom Line, or you have to go up to Seventh Avenue South and see this group." And that's how that's how word of mouth spread. That's how acts created a buzz. 
well, and that's how acts got signed like to major record deals I, I i've been out of it for a little while but i don't think that's how things happen anymore I think a lot of it is is a digital version of that where somebody's like, look at this kid on YouTube or look at this, you know, this rapper on SoundCloud oh, sure or whatever, true. but but not the same as being in the room and what and, and the energy it's of It's not the same yeah. as as corralling like a like a manager friend or a publisher right. friend or another AR guy and say like, I'm going down to see this thing tonight. Meet me for a drink and then we'll r- run by and you know, and you bump into other people there and there was there was like part of being a community, and I think like when you swap things on the internet, maybe you're missing a little bit of that sense of community and people like looking at other people's responses, trying to gauge right what is what is happening here? Am I getting this? Am I not getting it? it, it you know, it, it, it's a way to learn your job. You know, yeah. by by sort of being in the room. Well, and it's funny we bring up this sort of uh, how the record business has changed, but also the cyclical nature of the record business. And one thing that you spent a lot of time on in the early part of the book is this idea that Bell Records wasn't really a- ready to compete in the album world because they were right. sort of seen as a singles label. And now we've made it full circle where we've, we we're back around to where people say, is the album dead? We're really just a bunch of people are trading singles on the internet. You know, does it matter if you create an album and an album experience? Do you think we'll ever get back to the album phase? Yeah. I don't know that that's going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know that people consume music the same way, but when, when bell was hot in the late sixties and early seventies, Certainly, it was the beginning of the rock album era, but you know, the, but the, you know, the pop hit single still drove things the way it does now. Whether it was the night the lights went out in Georgia, or Seasons in the Sun, or Little Willie, or you know, right. whatever it is, Bell was able to like come up with hits from different sources. And one of the stories that interests me the most about the transition from Bell to Arista is that. Larry Utah, who ran Bell and Amy and Mala, had a very, very different A and R philosophy. Right. He would he would farm out. He would find producers, and so and, yeah, and, and production companies that would that were coming up, and he would give them the freedom to do what they did. He didn't really have an in house A and R department. I mean, yeah. it, it was it was it was all like independent islands of A and R that would feed in to the offices that were responsible for promotion and marketing. When Clive took over, uh, Clive Davis, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the epitome of, of an A&R driven record company president. Right, right, right. He said like, that's not the way we're going to do things. We're going to, you know, it, it, it's going to be my A&R department. We're going to go out and look at stuff. We're not going to rely on outside deals. And we're we're gonna we're gonna do it all in house, and that was like a very stark difference. Even though he was working with some of the same artists, a few of the same artists, like Barry Manilow and the Rollers and Melissa Manchester and Susie Quattro, he was doing it in an entirely different way. He always said that he built Arista from scratch, but what what I said is like he he built it from scraps. Yeah, 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 like yeah. The, yeah, the scraps of Bell. He picked up a little bit here, a little bit there. He saw in Manilow something that maybe, you know, wasn't there before. He was able to maximize the potential of the Bay City Rollers, found them some outside songs. I mean, it's like, yeah, it was it's like, like I said, like a sort of like a rummage sale of what was left at Bell. 
and then built the whole rest of the structure himself. That's a great way to put it. And, you know, for the most part, his A&R ear was right on, right? He made lots of good decisions. One we have to talk about, though, that you just you sort of mentioned and breeze over in the book is this decision between Dwight Twilley and Tom Petty. He's written about that in, in his book as well. That, that, yeah, there was some sort of, um, I guess, some sort of financial situation at Shelter Records where, you know, they would they were sort of not being able to, you know, you know, sustain it. And two of their artists were, you know, the Dwight Twilley Band and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, and apparently, from what Clive has said and other people, they were, the both acts were available. And at the time... I can see why he might bank on the Dwight Twilley band. I mean, they had had a kind of a hit single with I'm on fire and, and Tom right. Petty had not had a hit yet. Right. Dwight, they, they had a lot of fans in the press. I mean, a lot of the magazines I wrote for were like, Oh yeah, you got to hear the Dwight Twilley band. That first album on shelter was very, very highly regarded. And Tom Petty was like up and coming and certainly showed talent, but, if you were going to flip a coin uh, at the time, I, I don't, I don't know that p- putting your, your that coin on on, on the Dwight Twilley band was that, you know, was that radical <laughs> an, an, an error? But of, of course, as it turned out, you know, Tom Petty became one of the biggest rock rock stars of all time. Uh, and you know, sometimes you know that's, that's right. I mean, things, that's the game. That's the game. It's all it, it. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. And and but hearing that context, yeah, I totally get it. I think it's Clive, who's in. I think it's the David Geffen doc that Clive makes an appearance in, where they talk about Crosby, Stills, and Nash versus Poco, and Clive chooses right. Poco. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like, yeah, there's a couple of those. Like, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story because yeah, Graham Nash and David Crosby were both on CBS. Right uh, through the through the Hollies and the Birds, and Atlantic had Stephen, and, and then I guess Neil through Buffalo Springfield kind of, and I, I guess it was a toss up, and then it was be like, well, if you if I can have Polka, if I can have Richie Fury's band, you know, right. from the, Richie Fury also from the Springfield, right. then the Atlantic can have the other one at the beginning out of the gate, you know, I think you know they both made good first albums, and just that. Crosby, Stills, and Nash became, you know, the cornerstone of like a phenomenon, and and Poco was like at the forefront of the country rock thing, but did not become the Eagles. Right, right, right. That's a great way to put it. And I have a friend who's in the concert business and says, you know, it's all legalized gambling, right? Like it's all of this is just you're 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 hedging and you're making the best bets you can, but they're not all going to go your way all the time. On this show, we've been talking a lot recently. We did an episode about Tommy James, and so of course we talked a lot about Morris Levy, and uh, that's a name that you can't really you can't write a book about anything in the sixties and seventies without his name probably coming up. If you're talking about the record business, do you have any experiences with him? One of the attorneys at Arista had had some dealings with him about tracks that we both thought we owned that ended up on the American Graffiti soundtrack. <laughs> that sounds about right. And, you know, that, you know, that had passed that was like oldies that had passed down from owner to owner. Right. And Mars thought that he had owned all of them. And Arista had the paperwork that said otherwise. And the, you know, the attorney and Mars, which is one of the first deals he ever made, decided that he was going to that we can just like split them split the oldies down the middle that sounds like yeah. a morris levy deal from what i know yeah for that sure. morris levy, 
the, the story in the book about Michael, Michael Zilka, who has Z Records, which was distributed by Buddha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which had which had some financial dealings with Morris Levy. So so Buddha owed him some money. Buddha said, "You you know you got to go to Morris. He's a young guy in the music business. He goes into into the into the meeting with Morris Levy, and you know they come to some agreement on what he owes him on the sales of this twelve inch." And, and 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 Michael Zilka says to to Morris says, well, you know, it's not so much the money; it's the principle of the thing. And Morris Levy goes, if it's the principle of the thing, then fuck you. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, to Morris Levy, there was a, there was no principle of the thing. Right. It was a, it was if it's not about the money, why are we having this conversation? Uh, everything was about the money with Morris. Everything. Yeah. Was about the money. Well, of course. And it's that it's like, yeah, like he would always say, like you know, if you have a hit, like it's only it's only a matter of nickels, you know. But those right. nickels add up. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, speaking of speaking of it being about the money, and uh, you know, we're a show that talks a lot about rock and roll rumor and innuendo. So I mean, you breeze right through the why Clive was unemployed in the mid seventies, but you have any color you want to add there as to as to why Clive was well, not where I, he was. I don't. I mean, it was only through a year that he was that he was out of the business from 73 to 74. He could have probably jumped right into another record deal, but he was writing his book and he was, I guess, uh, considering what what his options were. And then he was approached by Alan Hirschfeld to run the record division of Columbia Pictures, which was Bell, Amy, Amy Mala, which, uh, yeah, I, I think you know, as an observer in the music business at the time, I was kind of surprised that that would be here where he was going to land. Yeah. But uh, I guess they, yeah, I guess they made him uh, an attractive, an attractive offer and gave him all the uh, autonomy and, and 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 financial participation he wanted, and you know, just like free reign to build Arista in in his image rather than be a partner with someone like David Geffen or Chris Blackwell or Amit or, right. you know, to do it, to do a label through one of the then majors, which he very easily could have done. But I mean, just speaking objectively and from what I know, I don't know that he would have wanted to be just a part of one of, of one of those majors that the idea of rebuilding himself at, at Arista was very attractive to him, and I think to an extent that's what drove that's what drove a lot of his decisions on who to sign. I think you know a lot of the artists that he that, that he gravitated to were people like Lou Reed or the Kinks or Dionne Warwick, who were in a bit of a slump, but that he saw further poten- potential in. And I think, to a lot of to a large extent, that's it, it, it's related to his vindication story. Like, I, you know, I'm going to rebuild myself, and I'm going to give these other artists the chance because we all deserve a second shot. If you have the talent, don't count us out. And I think that's that's one of the that's one of the 
principles of, of the labels. Yeah, I think you put it eloquently as with this summation, right? Of this is, you know, he saw this as as uh, parallel to the narrative that he wanted to tell about himself, about hey man, give me a second chance and you'll you'll never look back. And you know, he he pulled it off. I mean, you know, he's considered no, I mean, yeah, he one of the greatest. Did. And he banked he banked he banked on people like 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 Ray Davies, uh, Dion Warwick. Again, one of the one of the best pop singers, you know, of of of, of her era, uh, Lou Reed, even even the Grateful Dead, one could say, you know, you know, had had like Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, like they had had a run, and that run was kind of petering out, and they were not going through a major label distribution anymore. So, and, but he, you know, he's like, yeah, they're the Grateful Dead, you know, there's. There's an audience there. Clearly, they just have they have to make the right records. They have to have the right marketing, and of course that 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 succeeded on a wild wild scale. So the book's called "Looking for the Magic: New York City, the '70s, and the Rise of Arista Records." What are you going to work on next? Now that you finally got this out in the world after this long delay, anything that's, you're working on now? That's really funny. Uh, what am I going to work on next? Um, Last year, uh, I worked on a book with with with, with, with friends that uh, called the White Label Promo Preservation Society, okay. which was a collection of a hundred essays on albums that didn't make the top one hundred that rock nice. writers and musicians that we know love and, and want wanted to expound upon. Love that. And that book did did pretty well. It sold out a couple of printings, and and the publisher wants a sequel. So I think that I think that's the next project. Did I see that you you worked on the the Matt Pinfield book? Yeah, I co-wrote the book with Matt. I love that book. Yeah. I didn't even realize that until I was going over some stuff, and I'm like, wait, Mitchell wrote the Matt Pinfield book. That's a fantastic. Yeah, yeah, book. yeah. Matt, yeah, Matt and I collaborated on that, uh, which was which was a lot of fun. You know, he has he has great stories to tell, and you know, a very distinct way of telling them. And uh, yeah, he was fine. We, you know, we had worked together at Columbia. Where he became an A and R person for for a while when I was doing A and R there. Oh, okay. And we, you know, we bonded over the fact that we knew like the sequence of the the B side of some album. You know, right, like, right, right. Or the, it's like, you know, we're just two like music geeks. And he would come over to my apartment, and he would look at my record collection, and we would talk about, you know, we talk about it artists that he'd worked with and you know his mtv years and that was that was quite fun to do i'd love to i'd love to find another project like that where i explore elements of the of the rock world through somebody's first-hand experiences yeah well your first-hand experiences with the sarah's book were great and i loved how it wasn't just i mean there was a lot of this like real music business to it like i got a little overwhelmed with the like wow I now sort of feel like this constant barrage that was was coming at you guys in the seventies as you were trying to sort through this stuff and figure out how to make it work. Yeah. And uh, it's it for a as you said, music geek like myself, um, it was a really really good time. So thank you so much for writing it. Thanks for being on the show, giving us some time this afternoon. Oh, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for your time. 